Yeah. <clears throat> All right, turn with me this morning if you would. What are y'all laughing at? Good. Is that funny? No. <laughs> 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 laughing about the cinnamon bitch. I love the cinnamon. Yeah, that last drink of that coffee was nothing but cinnamon. <laughs> All right. Well, turn with me this morning, if you would. We're going to start off in Romans chapter 5. We began last week looking at the subject of satisfaction. Um, something that the Bible teaches. Uh, we looked at uh, Isaiah 53. We see that uh, the Lord said that he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Well, what does it mean for God to be satisfied? What does it take for God to be satisfied in the salvation of his people? Uh, does God just, because we're good people, say, hey, because you're good, I'm going to let you in? Well, we all know that that's not true, right? Now, that's the kind of picture that the world has of how things work. You know, you watch TV shows or cartoons and things like that, the old jokes and all that, where whenever somebody dies, they go to the pearly gates and St. Peter's out there waiting to let them in, and then he's... Looking in a book and saying, oh, your good deeds are more than your bad deeds. Oh, you can come on in or something like that, you know. We think that when we get to heaven that God's going to look and see that our, oh, he knows the motives of our heart. You know, I, I, I've heard that a lot in my lifetime. Well, God knows my heart. Yeah, God does know your heart. Apart from Christ Jesus, your heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. The Bible says that that is deceitfully wicked above all things. Your heart. Our heart by nature is deceitfully wicked. That means not only is it just wicked, but it's deceitfully wicked. Meaning that it's wicked and it tries to deceive you that it's not wicked. Right? Mm -hmm. What is that called? Well, it's called self-righteousness. Our heart tries to tell us that we're righteous, but it's completely wicked. But it deceives us thinking that we are righteous, that we can perform righteousness. Therefore, we think when we get to heaven, God's going to say, "Well, we, you know, I knew your heart was a, your heart was right." You know, well, yeah, God knows our heart all right. The Bible says that He looked down upon the face of the earth and He saw that the that the intent of man was evil continually. That's all we are in the flesh, is continually evil. So to think that God's going to look and be satisfied with anything that we do in this flesh uh, is a grave mistake uh, for anybody to think that. And it's unbiblical. There is nowhere in the scripture that teaches that God will be satisfied with anything in us. God is not satisfied in what we do. He's not satisfied in our faith in Christ Jesus. Now, does that negate faith? Is that is that me telling you, well, faith that isn't important or faith isn't real or whatever? No, that's not saying that. Now, that's what people want to say whenever we preach Christ alone for salvation, when we preach predestination and election and when we preach... Um, uh, uh, Christ and Him doing everything for us as our substitute, not only our obedience, but our death and resurrection uh, on the cross. Whenever we preach those things, people say, well, then we don't just do nothing. We just 
you know, sit there on our hands. No, that's not what I'm saying. I didn't ever say that to begin with. Faith is not important to us or anything. I didn't say that either. But faith to get something and faith because of something is two different things. We have faith in Christ Jesus. And is that essential? It's essential in the fact that that is the sign or that is showing that one has been saved. But it is not the condition in which one gets saved. So faith, while it is important, and while it is necessary in the fact that for anybody that is going to go to heaven, anybody who is considered to be the elect of God and quickened of the Holy Spirit, born from above and will one day go to be with Christ, They will exhibit faith. They will have faith in Christ Jesus. All that the Father giveth me shall come or believe on me. They will be faith. They will be given faith. But that is not to get saved. That is not to be justified. That is not to be sanctified. That is not to be accepted of God. There is no thing that we do, even the works of God in us, repentance and faith, and growing in grace and knowledge, those things are never conditional to get salvation or for God to deem us just or for God to be satisfied with us. Those are never conditions. Those are the fruits of what God has already done on our behalf, what Christ has already done on our behalf. So God, for God to be satisfied... <clears throat> Is, has nothing to do with anything that we do in and of ourselves, but God's satisfaction is solely, completely, totally consumed only in the work of Jesus Christ. And we looked last week and we seen that there are three things that's part of the satisfaction of God or how God is satisfied so that the salvation of sinners can actually take place. So the salvation of His people who are actual sinners, even though he does not impute that sin to us, we are actual sinners, and so there has to be there has to be some satisfaction for sin. The law has to be satisfied because God is not going to bend His law for no one. He says, "You know, the the the, one, the soul that sins will surely die." That is the, what the law says, and God is not going to bend the law even for His own elect. He's not going to bend the law. He's not going to turn a blind eye and say, okay, well, that's my beloved people, so I'm not going to count that against. There has to be payment. There has to be something to satisfy the justice, the law of God. And if that does not happen, we are just like everybody else. The elect and the reprobate, there is no difference in us by nature. We are wicked. We are evil. We are... Uh, unholy, we are unrighteous. The only thing that differs us from the reprobate is that God, through Christ Jesus, has done everything to satisfy the law of God on our behalf and has credited that to us. But He's not credited to others. (coughs) And so for God to be satisfied in the salvation of His people, for His justice, His holiness... His righteousness to be satisfied, that has to come 
by things that God will accept. See, God won't accept your work. We know that. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. By grace you are saved, not by works. God's never going to accept your works. God's never going to accept your trying. God's never going to accept your anything. He's only going to accept the things that His justice, that His righteousness, that His holiness deems fit or equal to what is owed. The wages of sin is death. Death is owed. So there has to be death. That death has to be in the flesh. So the flesh of man must pay. Jesus was that death. There has to be an obedience. There has to be an upholding of the law. There has to be righteousness established. Who did that? Jesus did that by his obedience. Jesus' obedience, Jesus' death. Both of those were substitutions by God for his people. And that is what God is satisfied with. God becomes satisfied. God's holiness, God's righteous judgment is satisfied by what Christ did for us. Never on what we do. So I just want to make that clear. So last week we began to see there are three aspects to satisfaction that we find in God's Word. We see propitiation, the word propitiation, and we talked about that all last week. And then we see atonement and we see reconciliation. And as I mentioned last week, all three of these words are very closely knit together, almost completely synonymous uh, and in some aspects, they are synonymous. You know, you could probably t- take these words and interchange them, and you're not going to really lose much meaning, okay? But we see these three words, and these three words are all things that make up how God is satisfied, how God's justice is satisfied, and how God can accept sinners, how how we can be with God who is holy although we are unholy, okay? And and this doctrine of satisfaction uh, is, uh, is, is, like I said, is found in the doctrines of propitiation, atonement, and reconciliation. Now, last week, we looked at propitiation, and we've seen that Christ is the propitiation for our sins. And we've seen that that word propitiation, uh, no, that's a big word, People don't hear that much, and especially in modern churches today, you don't hear doctrinal words like that, theological words. Now, the the word propitiation, that's not a theological word. That's a biblical word. It's found in God's Word. But yet, there's a lot of churches, and I've actually heard this said, especially back whenever I was an Arminian in a, a Southern Baptist church, and I was a youth minister at youth youth camps and in youth evangelism conferences and things like that, I would hear these things that, you know, we don't have to worry about these theological words. Let's try to make these as simple as possible because, you know, leave the theological things to the theologians out in their seminaries and things like that. Brethren, propitiation is not a theological seminary word. It's God's word. He put it in His word. 
And so we should learn what that means. We should see what God says about that. And the Bible says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And we've seen last week that that word propitiation, it means a, a, a satisfaction uh, uh, of, for God's wrath. God's wrath was satisfied in Christ's work and his blood that it's a turning away of God's wrath. God's wrath uh, his law demands condemnation. His wrath, or excuse me, his law demands payment for sin, which is death. The wrath of God upon us, but yet Christ and what He did through His blood, through His life, blood, resurrection. I hope we all understand through His work, meaning His whole work, His obedience and His death, that what Christ did in that that was the satisfaction for God's wrath. Therefore, God's wrath does not fall upon us. What's the opposite of that? Mercy. Instead of wrath, we receive mercy. And we saw last week that the word propitiation actually is translated, especially in the Old Testament, as mercy. The mercy seat, specifically. We talked about the mercy seat. And if you remember, the mercy seat was that solid bar of gold that covered the Ark of the Covenant, and inside was God's broken law. But on top of that is where the glory of God met, but in between that mercy seat, on top of the mercy seat, was where the blood of sprinkling was put. Whenever the atonement lamb was was killed, the blood was sprinkled on top of that gold bar that sat upon that thing, and God's glory then would come down and meet with the broken law, but only if that mercy seat was in between with blood on it. That's the only time. And so we see that that type, that foreshadow uh, of the Ark of the Covenant showed us that the only way that God, His wrath will not fall upon us is when there is blood upon the mercy seat. If the blood has been sprinkled, God's wrath is appeased. God's wrath is satisfied. God's wrath is now turned away from us, and it is placed upon Christ. And so that is a wonderful picture. And we also noted that there is only one way that God will work with that, and that is if that mediator is in between, right? We've seen that Christ is our propitiation. Christ is our mercy seat. That bar of gold represented or was the type of Jesus Christ as our mediator, as our intercessor, as our go-between. He is the one that lays upon the ark and he is the go-between between that which has broken the law and that which is holy. The only way that God can be satisfied with that which has broken His law is for there to be a mediator in between with sprinkling of blood. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or removal of sin. The broken law, that's us. That's the sin. But the mercy seat covers us. The mercy seat covers the broken law ones. Those who have broken the law of God, the mercy seat covers that. And so Christ is our propitiation. Christ is our mercy. We receive mercy from God in Christ Jesus because He covers 
those who have broken the law. And the sprinkling of that blood is the appeasement that God requires for no wrath, for no sin, for no bad doing. God looks at that. He says, you know, the blood of bulls and goats, I'm not interested in. But in Christ's blood, that's what God was interested in. So that was a picture. That was a type. Those sacrifices in the Old Testament, they did not take away sin. They did not do the job. They was just a type of covering pointing to the thing that would actually be the fulfillment of what God uh, and the grounds for which God justifies His people. And so we see that last week propitiation showed us that God's satisfaction comes whenever His wrath is turned to mercy and that is only found in the man Jesus Christ who covered our sins, who covered our breaking of the law by His perfect obedience and His shed blood. And so we've seen that in the propitiation. Now today, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, whenever Christ as that bar of gold on the atonement uh, or on the Ark of the Covenant was a covering for that broken law. Well, the next word that we see is atonement. And that word atonement actually means to cover. There's a couple of meanings. And again, like I said, these all, all these words are very synonymous. They mean uh, the same things and they're interchangeable. But we see that propitiation specifically deals with God's wrath being averted and turned to mercy. See, we've been given mercy instead of wrath. And that's because Christ Jesus. But we see that the atonement, the word atonement, it means to cover. There's a covering. And another thing that the word uh, atonement means is to be made at one with. At one moment, we can probably say. Or at one with. Okay, we've been made at one with. Which will lead us to the third word, which is reconciliation. And you kind of see how all these things tie together. But let's look at the word atonement here. Um, the word atonement is uh, used a lot in the Old Testament. Uh, and it usually has to do with the uh, typical sacrifices that I was telling you about, all the types and foreshadows. And the word means a covering. So in that Old Testament system, whenever that lamb was slain, whenever those offerings were made, whenever those sacrifices were brought and, 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 and things were brought to the priest and they were offered up for sins, and there was a bunch of different things that had to be done, different, but, you know, I won't get into all the details of all that, but, you know, the priest had certain jobs that they had to do. You had certain things that you had to bring for certain sins. I mean, it was a whole system that you had to keep up with. But all of that was typical, meaning typified. It, it signified. It, it was a foreshadowing or was a symbol of what Christ was, what Christ would be doing. And so, it was not a fulfillment of, it was not a satisfaction of, it was not a, um, uh, it was not a actual doing, but it was a, it was a covering. Those things were a covering for sin, 
But it wasn't the removal of sin. It wasn't what actually paid the payment for sin. Okay? So the word atonement means to cover. So it was used a lot in the Old Testament. We see several different typifications of covering in the Old Testament. And I kind of wrote down a few uh, and everything. Remember whenever Noah built the ark? And God gave him specific instructions on how to build that ark. And he said, build it this way. And Noah was faithful and built it that way. Well, one of the things God said to do was to put on the outside of that ark was to put pitch on the outside, kind of like this tarry substance on the outside. That was a picture. The, the, the ark itself was a picture, and the, and the pitch on the outside was a picture of the covering of Christ's blood on the mercy seat. See, if you remember that God built the ark, and then God chose eight people out of all the whole entire world, he found grace in the eyes of Noah, or Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And the, and the Lord said, take you and your wife, your three sons and their wives, and they went into the ark. And the Bible said that God shut the door. Noah didn't. You see, we see these movies where they're pulling ropes or pulling up the door and sealing the door, locking the door up. The Bible said, and God shut, they went in and God shut the door. We see, we, we see in the movies that Noah's out there rounding up all the animals. No, God brought all the animals in. God called them and they all began to come. God shut the door whenever they all got in. See, it was all done because the picture needs to represent what the actual fulfillment is all about. See, that's why we, we talk so much about the importance of baptism and the importance of the Lord's Supper, that the symbol must represent fully what the actual thing is. Okay? That's why God was so specific in how we are to baptize, who we are to baptize, who is to take the Lord's Supper, and what elements are in the Lord's Supper. Because those things, just like in the Old Testament, God was strict about how those types were to be done. Because they represented something. They had to be a correct representation of the actual thing. And so we baptize the way God has commanded us to baptize because it represents the real thing. We take the Lord's Supper the way God has commanded us to take the Lord's Supper because it represents the real thing. We can't substitute things in and out. Just like in the Old Testament, the priest couldn't walk in on the Day of Atonement in his shorts and tank top and go to cutting up lambs with whatever he wanted to cut them up with. No, God said there had to be a specific way you dress. You had to cleanse yourself. You had to go in on a certain day. You had to do it a certain way. Boom. If you don't do it this way, guess what? You died. <laughs> Whenever they carried that ark, the ark was made a specific way and it was to be carried with specific wood, staves. Specific men were to carry those things of a specific age group. If they didn't carry that the correct way, guess what? They died. You weren't supposed to touch the Ark of the Covenant. And one man, the thing was about to fall over into the mud. He stuck his hand up there to keep it from falling in the mud. Guess what? God didn't accept it. He died. 
The guy was just trying to hold it up. But God said no. Why? Because it's typified. There is a typification there. There is something that is being typified, and it has to coincide with the real thing. And if that real thing, or excuse me, if the type isn't signifying what it's supposed to signify, then we have a wrong concept of the real thing. See, if salvation is typified in a different way in the Old Testament, then we might have a wrong miscommunication about salvation. Same thing with our ordinances in the Lord's Supper and baptism. We can convey the wrong thoughts, the wrong understanding of salvation when we substitute and do it a different way. Not to mention the fact that God said do it this way. <laughs> Whenever He told us to baptize, He told us to baptize by immersing people in water and believers. That those believers had to believe the gospel, they were to be submerged in water. We see that the Lord's Supper is to be done within the confines of the church. And it is to be by believers who have been baptized. If you haven't been if you're not a believer in the gospel and you've not been baptized, you can't be a member of the church. You're only a member of the local church whenever you have been baptized upon believing the Lord Jesus Christ, upon the belief of the gospel. <clears throat> so you only can come to the Lord's table whenever you have been baptized, which shows that you have been united in Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection and His perfect obedience. You come to the table and you dine, but whenever you dine, you dine on what? The gospel. We commune in the gospel. Well, what did Jesus put down as the symbols of the gospel? Wine, not grape juice, wine, and unleavened bread. Because it represented his perfect humanity, his perfect body that was broken and shed for us, and his blood, his pure blood. Not tainted blood, not human earthly blood, but blood that God would accept. That's why we do that. Well, brethren, the same thing we see here. Whenever we see the ark, it's typified. God said to put the pitch on the outside. God put the people in. Close the door Himself. Why? Because that's a picture of us being in Christ Jesus and Christ being our covering. He covered us. We were at one with God. No wrath was... Whenever God poured out His wrath upon mankind by the flood, He killed every living thing that was out there except what was inside the ark. The ark was... What was in the ark was the only living things that God saved. And the only people that was in the ark were God's people that He chose out of all the rest of the people and He put them into the ark and He closed up the ark and sealed it. But He had Noah pitch the outside of that because that typified the blood being put upon the altar, being put upon the mercy seat, which the mercy seat itself was Jesus Christ typified. So it was a picture of Christ's shed blood. It was a picture of being in Christ, and therefore the blood of Christ being placed upon us, us between God. We were in Christ. Christ was the shield from God's wrath, the ark was the shield of God's wrath from God's wrath upon mankind, and the pitch was what sealed us in. 
It didn't leak. It didn't, it didn't sink. Because why? Because the pitch was on the outside. We are not lost. We are not, all of a sudden God changes his mind and says, you know what, you've done too much bad now, I'm going to have to take that away. No, why? We are sealed because of his blood. The blood of the atonement or the blood of the covering has covered us. And so the atonement is a covering. We also see that um, in uh, uh, whenever they painted the doorpost in Egypt. God said to put the blood, take the, uh, the lamb and slay the lamb and to put it on the, both sides of the door and over the top. And that was a covering. And whenever, whenever God sent the, uh, uh, the angel of death in to kill all the firstborn of Egypt, anybody that had that blood on their doorpost, the death angel would just go past, would, would go over, would pass over. That's why they called it the Passover. He would pass over them. Why? Because they were covered by the blood. Wrath would not come upon them because they were covered by the blood. God was satisfied with the blood, therefore his wrath didn't fall upon those who were covered by the blood. Now there are other types and stuff that we that we can find in the scriptures to show that, but we'll go ahead for time's sake and move up move on. But we see that God's law exposes our sins. God's law shows that we have broken his law, but yet in the atonement, in the shedding of blood, there is a turning of God's wrath and a giving of mercy, that's propitiation, but then there is a covering that we receive by His blood. His blood covers our sins. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. See, we have been covered in the blood. And that covering is what God looks at. God sees that covering for sin. God sees that covering and His wrath does not fall upon us. It's only used though one time in the New Testament and it's right here where we're at in Romans chapter 5. Kind of weird that the word atonement isn't made... uh, used much in the New Testament. We use that word a lot, but yet it's only found one time in the New Testament. Guys that may be smarter than me may be able to give you a reason for all that stuff, but I just know that there's only one place and it's found right here. So read with me uh, here at Romans chapter 5 and verse 11. It says... And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Now, first thing I want to point out here is this passage, or this uh, phrase, we have now received the atonement. A lot of people want to stress that now. We have now received. So, the workings of Christ, that... There's a lot of people, especially among the Reformed faith, that says, well, all the things that Christ did are not ever applied to us except for in time, whenever we first believe. Whenever we believe, then all of that is applied to us by God. 
Until then, God you know, holds it in reserve, and we're not declared just, we are not sanctified, you know, all that wrath of God is still upon us, but as soon as we believe, then the wrath of God is removed, then we are now justified and sanctified, or our sanctification begins, they would say, they would say. But yet, that's not what this is meaning. We have now received the atonement. It does not mean that the the work of the atonement is now laid to our account. It was laid to our account already before the foundation of the world because Christ stood as that lamb slain and God already had declared us because known unto God are all his works, the end from the beginning. God doesn't have to wait for the consummation of the thing to declare it to be so. Because God declares those things that are not as though they were, the Bible says. So God has already declared us just because of the covenant of Christ, who cannot lie, who covenanted to, I will go and take them, and I will go with them, and if I do not come back with them, then it will be to my blame. Remember, we talked about that type in the Old Testament. Christ has promised, therefore God does not have to wait for what is consummated. Although, I will say this, it is very important for us to understand that because there are some people who believe in eternal things who says, you know, that what Jesus did on the cross, well, I won't say that because I've never heard anybody actually say that, but if anybody thinks that we, here at least, or I, what I through what I preach, dismiss the importance of the cross, then they've mistaken what I've said or what I've preached. Um, because the importance of the cross is important. Christ had to come and do that. He covenanted to do that. And everything in God's eternal salvation for us is grounded upon the work of Christ of Him coming and dying on that cross. Him living and obeying the law him dying on the cross, and Him raising from the grave, that was integral to our salvation. That was the basis, the grounds for our salvation. So it's not, we don't ever say, well, that's not important because we believe in eternal justification. We believe in eternal justification, the fact that we say God is not waiting until that specific point in time to say that all the Old Testament saints are justified, or all the New Testament saints are justified, or whoever is justified, that God has already justified them in Christ Jesus because of Him and what He had covenanted to do. The Bible says that all the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. If Christ has covenanted to be that for His people and to go and to be the sacrifice and the substitute for His people in the consummation of time, in the appointed hour, at the appointed time of God then that's as good as it being done. God doesn't have to wait and look to see if Christ does that or will accomplish that to know that it's finished. Now Christ said that for our part, it is finished. Why? Because He has done everything that the ground and the basis for all of the eternal justification, all of the eternal sanctification, all the eternal work of God that God had declared from the, from the beginning, what He declared would happen clear to the end, 
he declared it so as though it was not our. He, he, he declared it so even though it was not yet. It had not yet happened. But yet he declared it so. And if God declared it to be so, then it is so. If God declared that there would be no sin imparted to his elect, imputed to his elect, I mean, not imparted, imputed to his elect, there is no sin imputed to God's elect. Well, when did God declare that? He didn't declare it in time. He declared it before He created all things. If God declared no sin to be imputed to His elect, then God viewed them as justified in Christ Jesus, but only because Christ was their propitiation, Christ was their atonement, Christ was their reconciliation, Christ was their substitute. It's only based upon what Christ did on the cross. And even though it may be in the future... As we talk about time, when God declared it, it was still in the future, so to speak. For God, who is eternal, it was not. It didn't matter. Because God is eternal. For us, it was, for us, today in 2023, it was past tense. For the Old Testament saints, it was future tense. But were they any less justified than us? No. They were justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. Were they imputed with, with, with sin? No, they were not imputed with sin. They were imputed with righteousness. How were they imputed with righteousness if Jesus had not been their covering? If Jesus had not been their propitiation? If Jesus had not yet been their reconciliation? How could they have been justified? Well, because God had declared them to be such because of the promise of Jesus Christ, because what Jesus Christ would do, even though He had not yet done it, He Declared it to be so. And you can disagree with me all you want, but you can't disagree with God. He said that He has declared the things that have not yet happened as though they were. Known unto God are all His works, the end from the beginning. God knows all of His works, those things that have not yet been done. Well, what do you mean? Well, God has a purpose. God has declared, predestined everything. And in time they may not have yet happened, but God has already declared them to be so, therefore they are so. I didn't mean to get off on all that, but I just needed to, to let us know that whenever it says that we have now received the atonement, it's not talking about that's the point when God applies that to us. That's the point in which we become aware of it. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have now received the atonement. What does that mean? It means by the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit has now given us knowledge that we have been made at peace with God. That we have, that God's wrath has been appeased. That we have been propitiated. We have been given mercy. See, we, until God quickens us and to give us that understanding, we don't not have that knowledge. And until we hear that gospel preached to us, if we have been quickened of God, we become knowledgeable of our sinfulness. We become knowledgeable of how we have transgressed God's law and how we cannot live up to God's law, that we are not holy. And when we're left in that state of not knowing 
that we have appeasement, that we have atonement, that we have reconciliation to God, when we think we have been enemies against God and God's mad at us and God's wrath demands this and here we are, what happens? We become despairing. We become upset. We become overwhelmed. We become sorrowful. We become, we become convicted of what we have done against God. But the gospel comes in and tells us that Christ has appeased that wrath. He has propitiated. He has changed God's wrath to mercy. That He has covered your sins. And that He is no longer mad at you. Of course, He wasn't ever mad at us. But His holiness, that law was condemning us because we are sinners. But now that law is satisfied. And so since that law is satisfied, there is nothing barring us from coming to God. There is nothing barring us from fellowship with God. There is nothing barring us from spending eternity with God. Christ has removed that all. Well, that's what the gospel does. The gospel is good news that Christ has done that on your behalf. That's what it means to now receive the atonement. We now receive the fact that we have been covered. We now receive the the message that there is peace with God. We have peace with God. So we have the knowledge, the blessing, the benefit of it. That comes when the Spirit of God takes what the blood of Christ has done on our behalf and makes it known to us that He did this for you. So now that we can, by the Spirit's working in us, never by what we do on the outside, never by any condition, never by any works of righteousness that we think we are doing, but only by the internal work of the Holy Spirit, that faith that has been given to us gives us a full assurance of faith that this is done for us. That there is peace. We can boldly come to the throne of God. We can pray to God. We can come to Him. We can thank Him. We can praise Him. We can worship Him. Paul said, I know. I know. That He will complete everything that He said He would do in me. He said that I know that, that, that this is mine. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which is commanded unto him against that day. Whenever we receive the atonement, whenever the Spirit gives us that knowledge and that peace and that joy and that... um, that, Acknowledgement that it's ours, brethren, that, that is where the assurance comes. The effect of this is joy and peace and comfort. Now the word translated atonement in the King James Version uh, can be translated and is translated reconciliation in, in, different, uh, in different passages. It's translated that way actually many times. The word for atonement uh, especially like Leviticus 6.30. Go ahead and turn over there and let's look at that. Leviticus 6, verse 30. 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. says, And no sin offering whereof any of the blood is brought into the tabernacle of the congregation to reconcile, there's that word reconcile, with all in the holy place shall be eaten, it shall be burned in the fire. So there's the word reconcile. That word reconcile there means atonement. It's translated atonement, uh, reconciliation. Okay? Atonement and reconciliation for sin is, like I said, Pretty close to the same thing. Both of them imply that God has been satisfied or that God has accepted something for our sin. Believers are, whenever we receive the atonement in our mind, we are made knowledgeable of the fact that we have been made one with God by his blood. Okay? So, let's talk about reconciliation then. Because, like I said, it's closely knit. The Greek word for reconciliation actually means a changing or an altering of a judicial status. Now, what would that be? Well, the judicial status would be Condemnation, justification. When Christ dies for us, there is a change in the judicial status of God's elect people. Christ's blood causes a change in the judicial status. Where the law says they are condemned because they have broken the law... Christ's blood says they are justified because I have paid the price. So therefore, there is a change in the judicial status of the child of grace. While we are sinners by nature, by judicial order, we are justified before God. We are righteous. Sinners by nature, righteous by judicial imputation. Christ's righteousness is imputed to our account, although we in actuality should be condemned because we are sinners. We are not righteous. There is an imputation of righteousness given to us. The Bible said, Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not sin. When was we blessed? He is blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus before the world began. Ephesians chapter 1. The blessing of imputation was before the world began. The grounds on which we were imputed that righteousness was when Christ died on the cross. That was the grounds for our imputation that God declared before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, we were deemed to be righteous. However, in time, we are unrighteous. And we will not be rid of this unrighteousness until the very end of this age 
whenever we are in our spirit united with the new body that God has prepared for us. It's not yet happened. But are we justified? Absolutely we are. Are we sanctified? Absolutely we are. We are justified and sanctified in Christ Jesus. And that's still future. As far as our body is concerned, we're still unrighteous. But God has deemed us righteous. Why? Not because of anything that we've done. Not because of anything that we're going to be, although we will be without sin at one at, at some point in the future. We're not there yet. So God can declare something to be such before they even are such. Or when they are such. Even though we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to Christ Jesus. We were enemies in our mind towards God, but God was not an enemy against us. Why? Because we were imputed righteousness before the foundation of the world. God had set his love upon us before the foundation of the world. We were loved with an everlasting love. Before the foundation of the world, God had already deemed us in Christ Jesus. Therefore, his righteousness was applied to our account. God only viewed us in Christ Jesus, and he loved us with that everlasting love. And he declared before the foundation of the world that we would not be appointed unto wrath. Now, is it is it being two-faced? Is it not two-faced? Is it being double-minded to say that God declared that to be such, but yet it had not happened yet? No, it's not being double-minded. It's not being double-minded to say that. Why? Because God had declared it Yet it has not taken place. But all of that was based upon the foundation of Christ's promise. The promise was there. Whenever Abraham took Isaac up onto the mountain, and God said, I want you to take your son up onto the mountain, and I want you to I want you to slay him, I want you to offer him up as a sacrifice. Abraham knew going up, God said to sacrifice, knew what was going to happen. Did God already know before Abraham got up there that Abraham was going to go ahead and go through with that? He knew that. Did God already know that he was going to stop Abraham from stabbing Isaac and provide a ram that was in the thicket? He already knew that. Did God know before Abraham even went up on that mountain that that ram was going to be sent wandering off somewhere and get caught in that bush right at the place where Abraham could find it and use that as the sacrifice. Did he already know that he had a substitute in place for that child? Yes, he did. But did he tell him to go up there anyway? Yes, he did. Did Abraham go up there? Yes, he did. Was Abraham going to kill the son? Yes, he did. He reared back to kill the son, was just about to plunge the knife into him when God said, whoa, stop. There's a ram. There's a substitute. See, God knew in advance all those things. God knows in advance all the things that are going to happen, but yet... He still lets all those things come to be, even though he has declared it from the very beginning. He declared that 
Isaac would not die, but someone would die in his place, or something would die in his place, in that case a ram. God knew before the foundation of the world that every one of us were going to be sinners in Adam. Before he even made Adam, knew that Adam would be the one to cause sin and death to come into the world. Why? Because he made him of the earth earthy. He made him unable to keep the law of God. He made him that way. God knew all that to begin with. But God still had declared before the foundation of the world that all his people were going to be righteous and not be imputed with Adam's sin. God knew before the foundation of the world that Jesus Christ was going to come and be the sacrifice for their sin. Therefore, God did not have to wait until Jesus came and died on that cross to be able to declare the things so that were not yet. Just like the same thing with the ram. He didn't have to wait until that ram was there to declare anything. He already knew. He's the one who sent the ram. He's the one who sent the the, the, the son up there to be uh, offered up. He knew all those things. <clears throat> the word means, the word reconciliation means an altering of judicial status. We Our status has been altered from condemned to justified. The word atonement, as I mentioned a while ago, means at one It's the removal of that bar of peace between us and God. When someone is reconciled, that means whatever it was that was dividing the peace between us has been removed. Me and Zach... Zach gets mad at me, or Zach's done something that's made me mad. Okay? Now there's broken relationship there. Okay? I'm mad at him. He's mad at me. Okay? Well, if whatever it is that was causing us to be mad at each other is taken away, then the door is open, or reconciliation can now ensue. Why? Because that which was causing unreconciliation, (laughs) that which was causing a division, that which was causing the separation, has been removed. There is nothing now separating that. Separating us. And so now there can be reconciliation. Well, Christ dying took away the bar of separation Christ dying took away the broken law and made us just as He is. See, the thing that is separating the glory of God and the, and the fellowship of God is that solid bar representing the perfection of Christ. The righteousness of Christ. The broken law is what's underneath. That's us. But whenever... Christ through His blood, whenever His blood is sprinkled upon the mercy seat and there is propitiation, there is a turning away of wrath. Whenever there is atonement, there is a covering of sin and there is an imputation of righteousness. There is reconciliation. There is a change in that order. Now that which is broken under the law is now the same as that which is a solid bar of gold and perfect. Now God can fellowship. There is a reconciliation there. There is not something separating us and God. The Bible said whenever Jesus died that the veil of the temple was rent in two 
from the top to the bottom. This was a big, thick, like curtain, tapestry thing that separated the Holy of Holies from the outer uh, courts and, and the outer temple part. That's the place that the, only the high priest could go. One time a year for offering of the thing. And he had to go in, cleanse, wearing the right stuff, doing everything exactly right, or he died. I've told you that before. You know, they'd tie a rope around their feet. Because if they went in there and did something wrong and died, nobody could go in there or they would die. So they would have to pull them out with a rope. Whenever Jesus died, whenever he said, it is finished, boom. That, that big old heavy tapestry, God split in two and it just ripped apart, exposing the Holy of Holies. Which it, to the Jews, that was a big no-no. They thought, oh no, we're going to die. But what it was, was symbolizing that there is now, because of Christ's death, there is now no more separation between that which is holy and that which is unholy. God's people who is unholy, there is now nothing separating us from that which is holy. We have been reconciled to God. We have been brought back to God. Are we unholy? Yes, we are. That didn't change. That never does change. Sanctification doesn't make us holier. Sanctification means we have been set apart to be considered holy, to be considered righteous, to be a servant for God. That's what sanctification means. It doesn't mean becoming more holy. We've been justified, we've been sanctified in Christ Jesus. But whenever that veil was torn in two, there's no separation. So now we can be reconciled to God. There is nothing keeping us from fellowship with God. Why? Because Christ is our propitiation. Christ has made atonement for us. Christ has reconciled us to God. Look with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 18. Probably go over just a little bit today. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 18. It says, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, one time, whenever I was an Arminian, and I believed that our preaching got people saved. Whenever I believed that people, whenever they accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, or they made a decision uh, to be saved, or they give their heart to Jesus, or they made Jesus the Lord of their life, or invited Jesus into their heart, you know, all those terms that we used to use, or I used to use, I should say, all those terms that we used to use, we believe that whenever we did that, we were reconciling people to God. We, the ministry of reconciliation is God, Jesus has died on the cross and now he's given us the ministry of reconciliation, meaning that we are now called to go out and to preach to everybody the gospel and to get them to reconcile to God. Well, that's not what this is saying. What I was preaching was completely opposite of what this is saying. 
We do have the ministry of reconciliation, but we are not reconciling anybody. We don't reconcile people to God. If you'll look closely at the passage again, all things are of God. Who hath reconciled us? Who reconciled us to God? God reconciled us to God. How did God reconcile us to God? By Jesus Christ. God hath reconciled us to himself by or through or in the person of Jesus Christ. It was God who was in Christ reconciling his people to himself. God did the reconciling. How did he do it? Through the person of Jesus Christ. Why would, did Christ come? Why did God in, uh, inhabit a body and come in the flesh? Because he came as our substitute. He came to reconcile us to himself. See, Jesus is God. Manifested in the flesh. All the Godhead, the Father, the Word, the Holy Ghost, are in Christ Jesus, and He reconciled His people to Himself through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the person of God. God is Spirit. He's invisible. He's a Spirit. And Christ is the one in whom God inhabited all the Godhead, the threefold character of God, indwelt Christ Jesus, and came and reconciled His people to Himself, but He did it through the man, Jesus Christ, through the body of Jesus Christ, through the flesh, Jesus Christ. Why? Because sin had to be condemned in the flesh. It couldn't be condemned any other way. It had to be condemned in the flesh. And so God came in flesh Himself. All the fullness of the Godhead came in the flesh. And that flesh is the one who did the reconciling. But it was God who was doing the reconciling in that flesh so that His people could be reconciled back to Him. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to Himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. What, what does that mean? Well, let's keep reading. To wit, that God was in Christ. There it was. God was in Christ. If you don't believe that God was in Christ, now some people believe part of God was in Christ. Only a third of God was in Christ. That just the Word was in Christ. They want to split God up into three individual beings three individual persons. But the Bible says that God is one. I don't know how all that works. I'll be honest with you. I don't know how it all works. All I know is the Bible says that God is one and that He has manifested Himself, that whole Godhead, Father, Word, Holy Spirit, in Christ Jesus. And all I know is that every one of those three attributes, Father, Word, Holy Ghost, all three of those Characters are all laid 
to the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the everlasting Father. Jesus is the Word. And Jesus is the Spirit of God who comes as the Comforter. So I don't know how it all works. I can't say that they're three individual distinct persons. But there is a trinity of character there. There is a trinity of working, of redemption there, of the Father electing the 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 word coming and as or the son coming and redeeming and the holy spirit giving life and bringing knowledge all that's the working but it's the working of only one god it's the working of one invisible god who has manifested himself as three and has all been put in one man Jesus Christ who is god now, go filter that out in your theological debates and call me whatever you want to call me, but that's all I can see in the Scripture, and I just want to say what the Scripture says. I don't want to make it any more than what the Scripture says, but I surely don't want to make it any less than what the Scripture says. But it says God was in Christ, reckon, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. Here again, we have three passages in scripture or actually there's more than that but three four if you want to count the parallel passage in the old testament that is quoted in the new testament you got four passages that distinctly say that god does not impute their trespasses to them and have committed unto us the word of reconciliation so Back in verse 18 it says, He has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Does that mean we are reconciling people? No, what does that mean? We are spreading the word, the message, the good news of reconciliation. What am I doing here today? I am sharing with you that if you're a child of grace, if you're, if you're the elect of God, if Christ has died for you, that you have been reconciled to God. There is no separation. There is nothing keeping you. Your sins have been forgiven. You have been justified. There is no condemnation on you. The law is not condemning you anymore. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is reconciliation that you have full access to come to God. That's the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of preaching. The reconciliation work of Christ Jesus on your behalf. That's why he says there, now he's committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Verse 20, now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead be ye reconciled to God. Is that meaning that we're reconciling people to God? No, because we got to take that, be ye reconciled to God, we got to take that in light of what was already said. What was already said? That we were reconciled by God in Christ Jesus. That's where the reconciliation comes. We are just preaching the message. We now receive the atonement by the Holy Spirit teaching us that that was for us and that it is applied to us by Christ's blood. It's not being applied to us in time. It was being applied by Christ's blood and so whenever we say, be ye reconciled to God, we're, we're saying, consider in your mind, 
that you have been reconciled. Reckon yourself reconciled. Look at yourself as reconciled. Don't look at yourself as, as off anymore. Away. Under condemnation. Believe the gospel that tells you that Christ took your place and that reconciliation is yours, that you've been reconciled. There is no bar between you and God. There is no dividing of peace. There is peace now with you and God. There is openness between you and God. You can come before God boldly before the throne of grace. Matter of fact, the Bible says that He has made us priests unto God. We, like that high priest, can go into the Holy of Holies where the throne room of God is and the holiness of God is filling the room as Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6 when it said that I saw the Lord high and lifted up and He's trained the glory of God filled the whole entire temple. And whenever I saw it, I fell down on my face and I said, Woe is me, for I am a man with unclean lips. I am undone. But what does the gospel say? You can boldly come because now you are not undone. You are not a man of unclean lips. You have been reconciled to God. Christ has taken your sins and He has forgiven your sins and He has imputed your His righteousness to you. When you come boldly before the throne of God, you come and stand in the righteousness of God. For He has made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That's reconciliation. He has reconciled us to God. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 16. Well, matter of fact, well, we've already read Romans 5, 10. Uh, Ephesians 2. Describing in here in the, in the book of Ephesians how Jews and Gentiles were separated. Okay, the Jews were the ones who was given all the things of God. They knew about God. They'd been given all the types, the foreshadows, the sacrifices, all that stuff. They were the first ones to know about this. The Gentiles, God never did go to them and give them the gospel. Only a few farts throughout the Old Testament, but God never went to the Gentiles with the gospel. Okay. So the Jews was the first ones that God did this with. But with the coming of Christ Jesus, the New Testament age began in the fact that now the gospel is going to all the world, not just the Jewish world, but to all the world. And so Paul is writing that there is no separation as far as God is concerned between Jew and Gentile. They are all one in Christ Jesus. At one time, there was a separation. There was Jews and there was Gentiles. And the Gentiles were known as dogs. They were the out, dogs on the outside. The Jews were the only ones who were the God, people of God and everyone else were dogs outside. But now Paul is saying, listen, God has an elect in every nation, tribe, and tongue. That in every city there is the elect of God. And that, that those people are now being brought together to form one people. One Israel, not a national Israel, but a spiritual Israel. And so in this he says, starting in verse 7, he says, Wherefore remember that ye began in times past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision, so the Jews and the Gentiles, in the flesh made by hands. 
that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off are made nigh or reconciled by the blood of Christ. You were far off. God has brought you close in. The Jews, they were close in. Why? Because God had been their God. Okay? Again, we're using types and foreshadows to teach us of spiritual things. The national, physical thing that we saw with Israel being God's people, because not all of the people of Israel were God's true people, his elect. Okay? Even though they were national Israel, they were not spiritual Israel. And the Gentiles, this showed this thing. There were the people that had been brought nigh, there were people that were still far off. God had brought them in. Okay? He says, For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. There it is. The enmity. The, what caused the separation? Okay? What caused the separation Jesus destroyed through his flesh? Jesus brought down that wall of partition. Jesus brought down whatever it was that was separating us between God and, and, and us. Jesus brought that down in his flesh. Even the law of commandments contained in the ordinances. See, that's what was, that's what was our problem. Was the commandments was there and we couldn't keep them. We were the broken commandments in the ark. We are the ones who have transgressed God, sinned against God. We are the ones who are unholy, unrighteous, and God is holy. And without holiness, no man will see God. So how does that, how can we be reconciled to a holy God? Christ had to come in the flesh to make in himself a twain one new man so making peace that he might reconcile both unto God in one body on the cross having slain the enmity thereby and became and came and preached peace to you which were far off and to them that were nigh for through him we both have access by one spirit unto the father now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens in the saints and of the household of God. So see there, brethren, we have access by one spirit to God, and it is because Christ has caused that reconciliation through his death. The blood of Christ that was shed made reconciliation. We see it also in the Old Testament. Turn if you would, and I'm going to try to hurry here. Turn to Daniel chapter 9. There'll probably be some again that will disagree with my interpretation here and think this is something that happens in the future. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 9, look with me at verse 4, or 24. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 says, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reckon, here it is, to make an end of sins. Whenever Christ came and died, he put an end to sins. Okay? He filled up or finished the transgression. 
and made an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Jesus, by his death, made reconciliation for iniquity. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. And verse 17. It says, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is, also, is able to succor them that are tempted. So Christ came, and one of the reasons that he took on flesh, why God became flesh, was so that he might reconcile his people. We've already seen that in the previous verses that we have looked at. In Ephesians chapter 2, if you would, Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> it says, And you have he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin, where in times past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath. Now, let me just pause here, and I've mentioned this to you guys in times past before, uh, on several occasions. A lot of people take that phrase, especially of the Reformed faith, for some reason they, they view it this way, I don't know why, the plain reading of Scripture says different. It says that who were by nature the children of wrath, it does not say that we were children under wrath. We've never been under the wrath of God. Although God's law demanded wrath on sinners, we were not imputed with sin. Therefore, we were not appointed under wrath because we were never imputed with sin. We have sin in actuality. That doesn't mean we've never sinned. We have sin, but God never imputed that. God never counted that sin against us because He always viewed us in Christ Jesus. Who were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So we were by nature the children of wrath. That meant we were wrathful towards God. But God, who is rich in mercy for the great love wherewith He loved us, and that love was an everlasting love, by the way, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and the kindness towards us, through Christ Jesus. For grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, <clears throat> we see here that God hath raised us up and made us sit together in heavenly places. That's being reconciled. We've been reconciled to God, and it was by Christ Jesus. Look at Colossians. 
chapter 1. Look at verse 21. Actually, let's, let's back up. Verse 19 said, For it pleased the Father that in Him, that's Christ, should all fullness dwell. And that's talking about the fullness of the Godhead. Okay? And having made peace through the blood of His cross, He made peace. He made atonement, at one He made peace. And He reconciled. Having made peace through the blood of His cross by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself, by Him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now have He reconciled. See, that's the ministry of reconciliation. Jesus reconciled us. We didn't have to be recon- we didn't have to reconcile God to us because God, before the foundation of the world, declared us just in Christ, declared us loved of God, declared us righteous by imputation when He put us into Christ. We were blessed with all spiritual blessings in, in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So the reconciliation isn't to reconcile and bring God to us. Christ did that by His blood. That's what God counted, the grounds of that, and why God never imputed sin to us. Why God never had wrath upon us. Why? Because God accounted what Christ's blood and what Christ's righteous works would accomplish. God counted them as though they were not, or as though they were, even when they were not. Even before it all happened, God declared it so. But what does he say here? Look at verse 21 again. And you that were alienated. We were at enmity with God. We were wrathful towards God. We were enemies of God. We didn't like that God. We didn't want this God. We wanted the God of our own making, of our own liking, or no God at all for that fact. You who are sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind. We were enemies in our mind, but we were never enemies of God in legality because God had taken care of all the legal aspects of that in Christ Jesus who was set up as our surety, as our substitute, as our intercessor before the foundation of the world as the Lamb slain. But, he says, in your mind, We were alienated and enemies in our mind. But whenever we have been reconciled to God, Jesus now has opened the door so that we can be reconciled to God. We can come and know peace with God. We can come and know assurance of faith. We can have assurance of hope. We can have uh, uh, hope in Christ Jesus and a rest in Him in what He did on our behalf. That there is now no condemnation. That the law has no... Uh, uh, condemnation against us and that sin has no hold upon us anymore. By wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blamable and unreprovable in his sight. (coughs) So that is in Christ Jesus. Reconciliation, brethren, has been made for us on behalf of us by the death of Jesus Christ. 
And so we now know through what the gospel preaches, what the gospel teaches, that Christ has by his blood satisfied God. God is satisfied in the saving of his people because every aspect of the law has been dealt with. Christ has fulfilled the law on our behalf. Christ has paid the penalty that was owed to us. The condemnation of the law that the law had upon us because we were sinners, Christ took that and by His flesh, by His blood, He nailed that law to His tree. All the ordinances that was against us, He nailed them to the cross and by His flesh, He reconciled us to God. He made a way of peace. He propitiated. He turned God's wrath away. He appeased the law of God, the wrath of God, and He opened up the door for us to be able to come and no longer be enemies of God, but to know that there is no friction between us. See, when people preach the law for you to keep the law, or God's going to be mad at you, or God's you know, you're going to lose your salvation. You know, a lot of the Pentecostals and, and people preach that you can lose your salvation. <clears throat> and then the people that don't believe in that, but believe in eternal salvation or uh, uh, eternal security, they still preach that, oh, well, you'll, your fellowship with God will be broken if you don't keep, you know, right standing with God, if you don't obey all the time and all that stuff. See, that's you don't rest in that. You're constantly being agitated by the law. You're not keeping the law. You're not keeping the law. You're not keeping the law. Reconciliation says the law has been satisfied. God is not angry at you. There is no wrath upon you. There is only open fellowship between you and God. And so when we rest in that, by faith we rest in what that gospel says then we're not looking at the law and trying to keep up this appearance of religiosity so that we might be pleasing in God's sight. We are accepted not because of what we do, but what was already done on our behalf. That's why it says there in Ephesians, and I'll read this and we'll be done. In Ephesians chapter 1... says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. So before the foundation of the world, God had chosen us before the foundation of the world to be holy and without blame. He chose us to be that. We didn't become that in time. He chose that for us before the foundation of the world. That's how he viewed us. Having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. And here it is, verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace wherein, that means wherein the grace of God, he hath made us accepted in the beloved. We are accepted not because of our law keeping, not because of what we are done. We are accepted because in the beloved Wrath has been removed. The law has been appeased. And reconciliation is open for us between God, who is holy, 
and we who are sinful. Because Christ has become our sin bearer, and we have become his righteous bearer, so to speak. We are his righteousness. We are made righteous in him, not in action, but in legality. So we can legally come to God who is holy, even though we are unholy. We've been reconciled. And therefore God is satisfied. He shall see the travail of his soul, Christ, and be satisfied by my righteous servant, Jesus. Not by ours, but by Christ. He shall justify the many. He shall he shall justify them. That's that was what was we talked about. Remember, there was a change in legal status from condemnation to justification. He shall justify them. He shall make them just in my eyes by his work on the cross. <clears throat> so God is satisfied, but to be satisfied, there must be propitiation, there must be atonement, and there must be reconciliation. God will be satisfied. And when God is satisfied with that legally, you can bet that there will be satisfaction applicably. Meaning that everyone for whom Christ died will receive everything for which Christ died for. They will receive forgiveness of sins. They will receive appeasement. They will receive reconciliation. They will receive uh, uh the new body. They will receive resurrection. They will receive everything that has been promised because it's been promised by God in Christ. Alright, does anyone have any questions or any comments? I know we went way over today, but <clears throat> didn't want to break this up into another message. Alright. Well, praise the Lord for what Christ has done. Alright, now, next week we'll not be here. Uh, I've been asked to come preach at Coweta Baptist Church next Sunday, so we will be gone from here on Sunday. Again, uh, if you guys follow us on live stream or whatever, uh, we uh, they have their own live stream. You can just look up on Facebook uh, or on YouTube. I think it's on YouTube as well. Uh, Coweta Baptist Church in Coweta, Oklahoma. Uh, they live stream their services there. Uh, if we're able to, we, Lori may go ahead and live stream through our uh, Facebook page as well. So, but we won't be here this next week, uh, meeting here. Uh, we will continue back with our fellowship, Lord willing, the next Sunday after that, though. Okay? Alright. Anybody have any questions or anything? Comments? Alright. Father, we thank you once again for all that you are and all that you have done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for uh, salvation. We thank you for um, the uh, uh, the blood of Jesus who is uh, not only taking care of the wrath of God, but has also uh, reconciled us to you. And Lord, we uh, are so grateful that we now have knowledge of our salvation by the Holy Spirit's work in us. And Father, we just are so... <clears throat> Uh, humbled by this, Lord. We know that nothing that we do, nothing that we have done, can ever merit what you have done. That your law is holy, that your law is just and righteous, and that it is good, and it will uh, surely uh, 
not be slighted in any way when judgment comes. But that that law will be uh, used as the determining factor, uh, Lord, upon all those who have broken your law. But praise the Lord, we have a substitute who has kept the law in our place. And Father, we just pray that you just might give understanding and knowledge to all your people, that you might give them grace, and not only being born from above and having heavenly mindedness, spiritual mindedness, but Father, that you might grow them in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might rest in what Christ has done on their behalf, that they might find peace, that they might find uh, joy, that they might find hope and assurance in the promises of Christ and what he has done on our behalf, Lord. We thank you for the Holy Spirit's work in us to bring that to us, Lord, to uh, first and foremost to bring us conviction of sin and our need for Christ, but Lord, to also to be able to rest in his finished work. May you be glorified and honored in the things that we do as you work and move within us. Lord, may you uh, keep us as we leave this place. Give us safety. Be with us as we gather, Lord, next week. I pray for the church in Coweta, for myself, Lord, that you might give me uh, the words to say to them down there, Lord, that you would have me to teach and to preach, to declare. Lord, I pray that uh, you just might... uh, Uh, Glorify yourself in Joplin uh, through your people as we preach the message of Christ and him crucified. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.